Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I then, what was happening a hundred years ago this week. And it's about World War I now, news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is November 15, 2017, and our guests this week include Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, Joe Weishar, architect and designer of the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C., Lawson Bergfeld from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Jackson, Missouri. Darley Newman, the host and producer of Travels with Darley on PBS. Nick Brokeshoulder, veteran with a story of service about his grandfather. And Catherine Akey, the show's line producer and the commission's social media director. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Tao Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. Let's begin today with a single word, suffrage. Now, what is that word? Is it the process of suffering? Well, well, yeah, in a manner of speaking. But the actual etymology or the history of that word comes from the Latin term for voting or to vote. It's a little hard to remember that 100 years ago, during the war that changed the world, a large part of the American citizenry had no democratic sway or say in the governance of the country. For some reason, in a majority of states, it was thought that you needed to be a man to cast a vote. The suffrage movement, the movement for women's right to vote, was in high gear during this time. And in 1916, during his presidential campaign, Woodrow Wilson promises that his Democratic Party will endorse women's suffrage. During that same election, the progressive state of Montana, surprise, surprise, elects suffragist Jeanette Rankin to the House of Representatives. And just four days after being sworn in as the first woman to serve in Congress, on April 6, 1917, the House of Representatives is casting its historic vote about declaring war on Germany, which eventually passed 373 to 50. Jeanette Rankin remained silent during the first reading of the roll call. So former Speaker of the House Joe Cannon of Illinois seeks her out on the House floor and advises, Little woman, you cannot afford not to vote. You represent the womanhood of the country and in the American Congress. So on the second reading of the roll, violating House rules about commenting on your own vote, Rankin rises from her seat and intones, I want to stand by my country, but I cannot vote for war. While the women of America are fully engaged in the war effort, from sending their sons and husbands and even their daughters into an unknown future, to taking over critical infrastructure jobs and tasks on the home front, and in dozens of other ways. 100 years ago this week, the pages of the New York Times are filled with stories about suffragists, pacifists, and President Wilson's change of position on the women's suffrage movement. <laughs> wow. So let's jump into our Wayback Machine and go back 100 years to see what this fuss is all about. Oh, 
It's the second week of November 1917. And just a week ago, a sociopolitical tsunami lands when on November 6, 1917, women in New York State win the right to vote. This sends shockwaves through the political arena and emboldens the suffragists to take action in Washington, D.C. In the November 11 Sunday edition of the New York Times, there are three articles about the suffragists in D.C. Dateline, October 11, 1917. A headline in the New York Times reads, Suffragists wary of old party bids. They declare continued nonpartisan fight for federal amendment. Men leaders see danger to their prestige in new political holdings. And the story goes on to read, The suffrage leaders have decided to keep the Women's Suffrage Party and its organized allies alive and militant as nonpartisan agencies to continue the fight at least until after the Congress shall have adopted and sufficient state legislatures shall have ratified the so-called Susan B. Anthony Amendment to the Federal Constitution. The amendment shall provide for the enfranchisement of women in every nook and corner of the United States. Politicians of the other sex who heard this yesterday realized with a sudden start that man was no longer the only pebble on the political beach. They were not slow to sense the potential behind the plan and marveled that the women's suffrage leaders with a stiff franchise fight on their hands should have found time to think up novel and catchy devices that had never occurred to the men politicians at all. So an overview. The women's suffrage movement wins in New York State. And the suffrage leadership realizes the power of their numbers and decide to hold themselves nonpartisan as a voting bloc until their goals are met, all to the odd surprise and shock of the old boys club, who had not imagined that the ladies would have such strategic pluck. Dateline, October 11, 1917. Another headline in today's New York Times reads, Suffragists eager to learn politics. They throng to hear President William Taft in discussion of a partnership of democratic nations. And the story reads, New York, that the suffragists are determined to prepare themselves for the polls by receiving as much instruction as possible in the techniques of national and international politics was shown by the throng of women who flocked to Carnegie Hall yesterday to hear ex-President Taft deliver a lecture on a partnership of democratic nations under the auspices of the League for Political Education. Seldom had Mr. Taft had a more attentive, earnest, and interested audience than these hundreds of women who felt that the passage of the suffrage amendment in New York obliged them to absorb and understand more thoroughly than they had ever done before the mysteries and intricacies of political science and international relations. And yet a third article is published in the New York Times on this same Sunday. This one about a defiant protest in Washington. Dateline, October 11, 1917. The headline reads, Arrest of 41 pickets for suffrage at White House. Police unable to induce them to move on, take them off in Black Mariahs. And the story reads, 
41 women suffragists from 15 states were arrested this afternoon for picketing outside the White House. Their adventure was one of the quietest and at the same time most sedately spectacular of all the picketing affairs yet staged. On former raids by picketers, the crowd had jeered, but today there was none of it. A murmur arose as the vanguard of suffragists marched across Pennsylvania Avenue. They carried their usual display banners, one at the head of the line reading, Mr. President, in your message to Congress, urge the amendment of enfranchising women. The police officers quietly informed them that they must move on. They replied that they intended on doing no such thing. The captain gave them a moment to wait, then, motioning to the policeman standing at his elbow, ordered the women to be escorted to the waiting black Mariahs. They went without protest, filling the wagons. Mrs. Oliver H.P. Belmont, member of the National Executive Committee of the National Women's Party, said, What have we come to in America when splendid women loving liberty are arrested for asking this simple question? Mr. President, in your message to Congress, urge the passage of the federal suffrage amendment enfranchising women. Two days later, Dateline, November 13, 1917. The headline in the New York Times reads, Suffragist pickets get arrested again. 31, including many of the former prisoners taken at the White House again. Protesting delegates of New York failed to obtain an audience with the president. And the story reads, 31 militant suffragists, most of who were among the 41 arrested last Saturday, repeated their picketing before the White House today and were re-arrested. This followed a hearing at which the 41 appeared before Judge Maloney at the police court, who suspended the sentences. This explanation was offered by Mrs. Wiley. I want to state we took this action with willingness to sacrifice our personal liberty in order to focus the attention of the nation on the injustice of our disenfranchisement, that we might thereby win political liberty for all the women of the country. She closes with, The Constitution says that Congress shall not in any way abridge the right of citizens peaceably to assemble and petition. This is exactly what we did. We peacefully assembled and then proceeded with our petition to the president for the redress of our grievance of disenfranchisement. The Constitution does not specify the form of petition. Ours was in the form of a banner. To say that we broke traffic regulations when we exercise our constitutional right of petition is therefore itself unconstitutional. So... President Wilson, a previously declared supporter of suffrage, now finds himself in a bind. The suffragists are in large part anti-war, growing in power, declaring themselves apart from established parties and seemingly ever more militant. He comes to see the movement as a threat to the war effort. In the end, a compromise is reached. The suffrage movement declares support for the war and the Susan B. Anthony Amendment is ratified after being passed by the 36th state, Tennessee, on August 18, 1920. A woman's right to vote becomes the 19th Amendment of the United States Constitution, a movement that had a watershed moment 100 years ago this week in the war that changed the world. At last, the Battle of Passchendaele in Flanders ends. 
It's declared a victory for the Allies, but at such a cost, can anything really be considered a victory? Here to tell us about it is Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. The horror of Passchendaele is finally over. Mike? Thank you, Teo. Here's some of the headlines on this story from Europe a hundred years ago. A great battle is over. Passchendaele and Flanders victory or disaster. Either way, another blood-soaked horror. And this is special to the Great War Project. By mid-November a century ago, the battle for Passchendaele and Flanders has come to an end. Among those taking part are the Canadian forces, although meager in number, they figure prominently in the outcome. The Canadians advance a bare 500 yards, reports Gilbert, in the face of a massive German artillery bombardment of more than 500 guns and continual air attacks. Passchendaele became just another war of attrition in the view of historian Michael Nyberg that cost enormous casualties for negligible gains of territory. The numbers for the battle are staggering. Since the start of the British offensive on the last day of July, British forces had gained four and a half miles of ground. The cost was 62,000 dead. A further 64,000 had been wounded. As for the Germans, they lose 83,000 killed and as many as quarter of a million wounded. Some 26,000 Germans have been taken prisoner. The British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, hails Passchendaele as a great victory. But he adds, when I look at the appalling casualty lists, I sometimes wish it had not been so. A deep reluctance, observes historian Gilbert, to be in the casualty lists could be seen that month in the statistics following the call-up in Canada. So unpopular was the prospect of military service in Europe that of the nearly 332,000 able-bodied Canadian men who are eligible to be drafted, less than 22,000 reported for military service. More than 310,000 applied for exemptions. It was an indication, Gilbert writes, of the growing grasp of the reality of this war. More widely, the war sapped daily life in Britain in countless ways, writes historian Adam Hochschild. By this time a century ago, one city after another began rationing food, indeed rationing everything. Another winter brought exceptionally cold weather. Coal rationing is imposed in London. People lined up to buy everything. Newspapers shrank as newsprint became scarce. This is a partial list of things that were increasingly hard to get. Bacon, butter, margarine, matches, and tea. Long lines appeared for all these products. Wheat, husks, and potatoes were used as filler in bread, reports Oakshield. And this incredible fact, throwing rice at weddings was made a criminal offense. Even conscientious objectors in prison saw their bread ration cut in half. The public is turning cynical, and this cynicism is reflected in the newspapers. We're telling lies, says the publisher of one newspaper who has already lost one son in the war. We dare not tell the public the truth, that we are losing more officers than the Germans. Reluctantly, one of Britain's most influential publishers writes to Lloyd George, we are slowly but surely killing off the best of the male population of these islands. We're not losing the war, he writes in the Daily Telegraph, but its prolongation will spell ruin for the civilized world and an infinite addition to the load of human suffering, which already weighs upon it. And that's some of the news from the Great War Project these days, 100 years ago. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. For videos about World War I, we recommend the Great War Channel on YouTube, hosted by Indy Nidell. This week, new episodes include 
The Russian October Revolution. Another, The Mad Baron. And a third, The Last Hussar, August von Mackensen. Follow the link in the podcast notes or search for The Great War on YouTube. And now it's time to fast forward into the present, to World War I Centennial News Now, and explore what's happening to commemorate the centennial of the war that changed the world. Last week, on November 9, 2017, the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission hosted the ceremonial groundbreaking for America's World War I Memorial at Pershing Park in Washington, D.C. The event marked an important moment in the project's realization, with great guests speaking on the occasion, including Muriel Bowser, the mayor of Washington, D.C., congressmen, Ted Poe, Emanuel Cleaver, Doug Lamborn, and Kevin Yoder in a great bipartisan show of support. The administration's U.S. Secretary of Veteran Affairs, David Shulkin. And the Chief of Staff of the Army, General Mark A. Miley. Now, this is a post that General Pershing himself held from 1921 to 1924, and that's just some of the great speakers. In fact, it was such an interesting series of presentations, perspectives, and information that next week we're dedicating a special Thanksgiving holiday episode to bringing you the event. Joseph Weishar, who won the international design competition to become the lead designer for the National World War I Memorial, spoke at the event and is also with us here today. Joe, it's the first time we've had you on the show, but certainly not going to be the last. Welcome. Thank you, Taya. It's a pleasure to be here at last. Joe, we want to learn a little bit about you. You're not an old hand at this memorial thing. So can you tell us how you decided to enter the design competition and a little bit about the experience of getting selected? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, when I started this process, I was only 25 years old, knew very little about World War One. I. I feel like came into this entire thing as a completely blank slate. I came across all the information for the memorial competition. And the first thing that kind of struck my mind was, wait a minute, like there's not a national World War One memorial. And so I went straight to Google and, you know, sure enough, there's not a World War One memorial. Some were kind of hidden on the mall with all the others. I dug in a little bit more into the competition information and found myself still sitting at my computer probably about four hours later on the National Archives website, just pouring through photograph after photograph of soldiers from World War One. The thing that really struck me about those photographs was kind of the age of all the guys that I was seeing. They were from 18 to 25. I know some even younger than that. When I saw those guys and realized, okay, they're coming from these small towns across the U.S., I said, okay, well, I'm from a small town. I'm from uh, Northwest Arkansas. And if I had been alive 100 years ago, you know, this would have probably been part of my life. 70,000 soldiers um, came from Arkansas. And, you know, there's a good chance that I would have been drafted or signed up for the war effort. And so uh, deciding to enter design was a very easy thing. Then kind of lo and behold, uh, a month and a half later, the commission called me back and said, 
hey, you made it to the short list of this competition, uh, one of five. And from there, you know, things have really just progressed. Um, we ended up uh, winning the competition and have been the design team for the last two years. So during the live stream of the ceremonial groundbreaking, the chat room was full of comments from your hometown, your school, your mom, your teachers. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up and all those good folks. I grew up in Northwest Arkansas in Fayetteville and all the people who commented um, have been my biggest supporters my entire life. We've gotten great support for this memorial from the people of Fayetteville and I can't thank them enough for the continuous just support that they give me. We've gotten quite a bit of involvement in our education programs actually with some of the schools in Fayetteville. In particular, the middle schools have really adopted kind of the World War I curriculum and are teaching it now. So, Joe, tell us a little bit about the partnership with Saban Howard, who we'll have on the show as soon as he gets back from New Zealand. How did the two of you hook up and what roles do each of you play? So I was selected as one of the finalists for uh, the second round of the memorial competition. And the commission and its staff members took a look at my design and they said, well, it looks like you've got some sculpture here. What sculptors do you know? And of course, being 25, I knew no sculptors. I had some favorites, you know, Michelangelo, he did a great job. Uh, I would have loved to hire Daniel Chester French to do this. But unfortunately, both those guys, you know, passed away long before I was born. And so I had to start looking for the best living American sculptor I could find. So again, I turned to Google and did a little bit of searching and came across Sabin's website. And in the first probably two minutes of looking at his website, I knew he was absolutely the right person to do this project. And so I cold called him that night and left a voicemail for him. Uh, left an email for him, and he called me back probably about two hours later, the most excited I've ever seen or heard him, and said, yes, of course, I'll do this project. And he dropped all of the work he was doing. He sold a number of sculptures so that he could take the time off to do this project. So his role in this whole thing is he is essentially in charge of the sculpture design uh, for the bas-relief, uh, which is the main design element of the memorial. My role is to give him how big that wall can be and what it's made out of and how it's attached, and then the entire rest of the park that goes around it and supports that design. Okay, Joe, I have to do this to you, and I'm going to ask you the same question again in the future sometime. What's the most memorable thing about this experience for you so far? Because of my role in this project, a lot of people like to reach out to me, complete strangers. Uh, I get a lot of uh, random cards and letters from people. I have no idea how they find my address, but I'll get these random letters that say my grandfather, my father fought in World War One, and sometimes they'll include a photograph, um, stories, um, or just little bits of ideas and quotes that they would like to see included in the memorial. And for me, kind of getting that, that interaction with people I've never met and never expected to meet 
uh, has been really great. Joe, I hear the congratulations are in order and that you just got married. Tell us about the happy bride. I did. We just got married three weeks ago. Uh, her name is Stephanie. We met when we were both living in Chicago, and now we both live here in D.C. She just finished up uh, her Ph.D. in economics last year in June and works in D.C. now as a litigation consultant. Well, congratulations to the both of you. And we look forward to having you come back on the show for updates as the project and the journey of Joe Weishauer continues. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I'd love to come back anytime. Joseph Weishauer is the architect and designer for the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. Go to www.cc.org memorial to learn all about the project. And we have the link in the podcast notes. It's time for our feature, Speaking World War I, where we explore the words and phrases that are rooted in the war. Americans have been known for their shooting skills since the early colonial days. And in World War I, they continued to display their sharpshooting skills in the trenches. But shooting from a trench in the war was very different from shooting back home. Lifting your head up while you carefully aimed in on target could get you killed. So when you went to fire, speed was the key. Snapping up over the parapet, aim, fire, and drop became the standard procedure, a procedure that came to be known as a snapshot. The word snapshot had been used to describe a quick shot from a firearm during the 1800s, but became much more frequent in use during the war. Around the same time, the word was also borrowed for another activity, taking pictures. As we mentioned in episode 30, this era was the advent of roll film and small portable cameras. This allowed people to take pictures casually and easily. These quickly composed photographs also became known as snapshots. Photographers could pop up the camera, aim, and fire with the same speed as their namesake riflemen. A game even emerged called snapshooting, a sort of photographic version of tag where you tried to escape while somebody raced around trying to catch you on film. It was a kind of a photographic version of hunting. But as we were preparing this article, it suddenly struck me how strange it is that we speak of shooting a picture, shooting video, shooting a selfie. I mean, if you think about it, that's completely backwards. Nothing comes out of the camera. You're not shooting anything. The light and the image go into the camera. So you're not shooting, you're capturing something. But somehow, the term snapcap just doesn't have the same panache of this week's speaking World War I word, snapshot. See the podcast notes to learn more. Moving on to our 100 Cities, 100 Memorial segment about the $200,000 matching grant challenge to rescue and focus on our local World War I memorials. As you listen to our guests tell us about the project, remember that we're taking grant applications for a second round of awards. The deadline to submit the application is January 15, 2018. Go to www.cc.org/100memorials to learn all about it. This week, we're profiling the World War I Doughboy Memorial Project in Jackson, Missouri, one of the first 50 awardees for the 100 available grants. With us to tell us about the project is Commander Lawson Bergfeld, U.S. Navy retired, and the World War I Doughboy Memorial Project lead for American Legion Post 158. Welcome, Lawson. Good morning. Lawson, 
Looking at your grant application, your project reads like a textbook case for our program. First of all, the memorials in front of your county courthouse, where so many World War I memorials are to be found. But there's a lot more. Would you start by telling us a bit about the project itself? The World War I statue of the Doughboy, uh, approximately 16 foot tall, uh, Vermont white marble, is placed on the courthouse lawn in Jackson, Missouri. It was placed there by a, a group of organizations, the uh, American Legion organization in Jackson and in Cape Girada, uh, the Daughters of the American Revolution, the Grand Army of the Republic, Daughters of Confederate Veterans, and uh, Sons of Veterans all uh, played a part in erecting the statute some hundred years ago. So it was a community effort in doing honor to those who had served during the war, those individuals who died during the war from Cape Girardeau County. The statue itself uh, has a plaque on it that lists 40 names of individuals from across the county, uh, represented not only uh, young men, but also young women. The 40 names that's on the plaque, there are uh, approximately 16 of them uh, died in combat. Uh, there are two girls listed on the plaque. There are also four African Americans listed on the plaque. In that day and time, 100 years ago, women's suffrage had not even been passed yet. So I think it's a, a, a true attribute to the citizens of the county to have listed everyone that participated in the war that participated in and gave their all in the war. The plaque also lists uh, individuals such as a, a guy by the name of Ben Eggers. Ben Eggers uh, was out of the trench twice during the war. The third time out, he, uh, he died. He got killed in action in the Battle of the Argonne Forest. This was only six days before the end of the war. Probably the last individual from uh, Cape Girardeau County that got killed in the war. He was interred in France. Later, he was reinterred at home a couple of years after the war uh, to one of the largest crowds to ever attend a funeral in a small town. A uh, newspaper clipping uh, mentions the fact that actually thousands turned out that he was actually pulled by a caisson to the cemetery just at the edge of town. And this is a town at that time that, that only had uh, probably 1,800, 2,000 residents. Another individual, uh, uh, an African-American boy by the name of uh, Ezra Taylor, uh, was killed in, in, in France, uh, died in France uh, from wounds incurred in the last stages of the war, died shortly after the war, buried in France, and was later reinterred in Arlington, uh, Individuals such as that uh, adorned this monument uh, of white marble in Cape Girardeau County, which I think is a great tribute to uh, all who fought and uh, those who did not come home. During the course of my investigation through countless newspapers, uh, speaking to older individuals about their grandmother or grandfather, uh, and reading countless microfilm, uh, I uncovered seven other individuals that needed to be listed on that stone, 
and by conferring with the county commission that's in charge of the courthouse lawn, that's in charge of the, the square and so forth, these names will be added on an additional plaque to the stone and the doughboy will be rededicated this coming May. So what made you decide to participate in the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project? How did you hear about it? Well, I was reading an article, and I can't tell you whether it was either in the American Legion magazine or the VFW magazine. This was probably last winter. I went to a Legion meeting uh, the next month or whatever, and I brought it up during the course of the meeting. And I said, you know, we should do something about this. So I said, we have a memorial in our own courthouse lawn. And, you know, you should never raise your hand and call attention to something because immediately they say, well, you know more about it than anybody else. You know, you're the one that needs to take charge here. So that's that's one big reason why I got involved in it. But I think personally, individuals who give their life for the for the sake of uh, democracy and for the sake of their own country who bear the uniform of the nation deserve to be recognized and especially if they give their life for it. Commander Lawson Bergfeld, U.S. Navy retired, is the World War I Doughboy Memorial Project lead for American Legion Post 158 in Jackson, Missouri. If you have a project you want to submit for a grant, go to ww1cc.org slash 100 memorials or follow the link in the podcast notes to learn more about how to participate in this program. For our Spotlight in the Media segment this week, we're speaking with Darlie Newman, the host and producer of Travels with Darlie on PBS, where she travels the world with locals as guides to uncover great food, culture, history, and outdoor adventures. Darlie produced a two-episode series about traveling to France's Western Front, which is airing on PBS stations across the nation now. Welcome, Darlie. Well, thank you for having me. Darlie, there are so many amazing things to focus on in France. The food, the wine, the fromage, the architecture. How did you come to focus on American World War I sites as a topic for your travel show? Well, we're mixing in food and culture along with these amazing and important sites as well. But the centenary is, is, is happening and is here, and, it, and it's something that is important um, for, for more people to learn about. We like to try to tell stories in our series that may be lesser known. I mean, we traveled along with French men and women who a lot of them are experts on the history or they have a passion for it. And I think by talking to those folks at the different locations, you get such a greater sense of what happened and and why it's so important to remember. So which site sticks out in your mind is particularly interesting? There's a really fascinating museum it's very small. It's called Roman 1418. And it's owned by Jean-Paul de Vries, who he's made it his life's work to collect artifacts from around, around his village area. And it's, it's fascinating when you go inside. It's housed in an old barn. And he's collected over 80,000 objects. I mean, there's everything from old guns to, to soldiers' boots. But every, everything in there has a story. And again, visiting that museum and talking to Jean-Paul, he really paints a picture for what happened through these, these artifacts. He tells a powerful story of how communities in northeastern France were affected. And uh, another site that came to mind when I 
I heard you, you speaking earlier was um, we actually visited Chateau de Blarencourt, which is um, the Chateau of Anne Morgan, an American woman who went over to France and helped with the rebuilding effort. She uh, founded a, something called the American Committee for Devastated France, and it was a group of 350 American women who volunteered. They delivered medical and social services. And this was a time when in France and in America, a lot of women didn't even have driver's licenses. And here you have Anne Morgan driving supplies through combat zones. So, I mean, that's going to be sites that really helps paint a better picture for what happened and the many, many people involved. Darley, if I wanted to take a trip through historic areas of the Western Front in northern France, how should I prepare? Well, <laughs> there's so many places that you can visit. So one thing to keep in mind is just to think about the amount of time you want to stay in each location. But something I would suggest that many people don't think about is there are actually some really interesting places that you can stay that have history intertwined as well. We stayed um, in an old chateau which was a hospital for American troops. It was a base for ambulance sections during the Great War. So you can stay in this amazing chateau that has this interesting Great War history. And also just sites that might be lesser known. We actually went to a fair number of champagne cellars, which have World War I history in those cellars. There were soldiers that hid out in the cellars. There were you know, people from the community and it's just not something that you, that you may automatically think about when you think about the Great War. We also visited a place I would definitely recommend called the Dragon's Cave. It's along the Chemin de Dame. And it was the site of an underground battlefield. There were people actually fighting in these underground quarries. And again, walking through and, and actually physically visiting those locations, it really does bring the history to life and, and you know, a history that we read about and we may see documentaries on. Um, but I think when you actually go to the locations in the present day, it can really change your perception on World War I and, and also just emphasize the importance of learning about this history so we don't recreate the mistakes of the past. Okay, my last question. If I decide to take this trip, what should I never do? <laughs> well, I would definitely tell you not to be on a diet. <laughs> Because, no, seriously, I had the best cheese I've ever had in my entire life. I mean, we know, we know France is known for its cheese and its champagne and wine, but it was so good. But I will tell you a positive is that you can explore a lot of these destinations in an active way, which if you watch our episodes, they're on PBS stations across the nation now, and they'll actually be repeating again if you miss them in January. Um, but you can bike battlefields. We biked through um, the battlefields at Verdun, which is a great way to see that area. And, and you can then burn off some of those calories that you might be ingesting on your trip. <laughs> Darley Newman is the host and producer of Travels with Darley on PBS. And you can watch the Travels with Darley, France's Western Front episodes, see the online videos, and get other special content by following the link in the podcast notes. This week in our Remembering Veterans segment, we have a special guest, Nick Brokeshoulder from the Hopi tribe of Arizona and absentee Shawnee tribe of Oklahoma. Nick is a retired U.S. Army Sergeant First Class and is with us today to tell us about his grandfather, Guy Maktaima, a son of the Hopi tribe. Good morning. 
My name is Nick Brokeshoulder and I'm calling from Gallup, New Mexico, and I wanted to be able to give a chance to speak about the, a Native American experience for my grandfather who served in World War I. So, Nick, as a child of 12, your grandfather was taken from his Hopi village by U.S. cavalry troops and sent for, quote, white re-education in 1907. That's a pretty brutal experience. How do you think that affected his decision to join the military? In the beginning uh, of that time frame in 1907, the Hopi tribe itself was encountering, I guess you would say, encroachment of U.S. government policies. In particular was the Dawes Act, which was a land allotment act at that time frame. Before he was sent to the boarding school, his village of uh, Old Arrivey, which is located in uh, northeastern uh, Arizona, about maybe 80 miles north of Flagstaff, up in the corner up there, in that location, my grandfather, he was witness to all the uh, assimilation tactics that were present at that time. And he himself had witnessed his village being split apart from uh, progressive natives to the traditionalists, which he belonged to. He was, uh, they were called traditionalists, but in their turn, they were called hostiles. Uh, at that time, he was taken to a boarding school and he was um, acculturated. We'll just say that. They cut off all his hair. He was deloused. He was uh, placed with 30 students in a, in a classroom and didn't know any form of English. His English name is Guy. And how he got his name was he uh, had to pick it off a chalkboard from the, the missionary teachers that were there. And it had boy names and girl names. And they marched the kids in there. And he, they said, go point to your first name. And that's how he got his name. His last name is in the Hopi language is Makdaima, which means hunting for game. The word Mak means to hunt, and Daima means to, to go out and search. The interpreters at that time kept the best translation of his last name. He had to adapt. He had no choice because he was removed to that boarding school at, near that time at age 12, right? And uh, that was 36 miles away from any of his uh, relatives or anybody to help him. Uh, the best way that the, the outside world felt the Indians could adapt was to teach them a trade. And so what happened was he was taught, like, uh, uh, working with horse equipment, you know, leather items, saddles, uh, reins, the, the, anything that has to do with, like, a wagon and so forth like that. And at the same time, that's where he learned how to work with music. He learned how to read sheet music, and he played the trombone. That's where he picked it up. Then he went to Phoenix Indian. That was in Phoenix, Arizona, and it was there that he uh, uh, enlisted into the service. He was with the 1st Arizona Infantry. The 1st Arizona Infantry, they were tasked by General Pershing, Black Jack Pershing, to go down to uh, New Mexico. They were you know, trying to corral Pancho Villa, who was the Mexican revolutionary. Since my grandfather had uh, picked up music, there was an actual um, military band that was sent down there, and he was part of that. Military music at that time was considered a, a real integral part of the, the military because it, it increased morale. It helped them uh, have a break uh, so that they could keep doing their job in faraway locations. And it provided music that everybody could just get along with. So, Nick, when Catherine was researching the story, she came across a recording of the 158th Regimental Band. It's possible your grandfather's playing in the trombone section of this recording. Let's take a listen.
Nick, what was Guy Mactima's experience during the war? He was in uh, France for roughly a year and a half, maybe a little bit close to two years. The entire journey was recorded in a journal by a man by the name of William Getz. He was a private uh, assigned to this unit, and it, it describes their journey of, of the entire train ride from Kearney, California, all the way to Hoboken, New York, before they went actually sailed on a ship to uh, France. And so again, the return back to um, the States was recorded as well. He finished up in, in 1919, and my grandfather was present for many of the ceremonial forms of like uh, recognition events that were held after the armistice signing. You know, of course, he did all his uh, musical efforts, and the 158th was recognized as President Wilson's uh, honor band. And um, my grandfather, he, he served, like I said, at a lot of different events, dignitaries from across the nations when uh, the League of Nations address was being uh, delivered, which resulted in our United Nations. And so um, my grandfather, he, uh, he saw a lot. Last question, Nick. How has the centennial of World War I affected your remembrance of your grandfather? Well, my grandfather was... Uh, a traditionalist. He was uh, well versed in a lot of things in regards to our Hopi culture out there in uh, our, our reservation out here. At the same time, his uh, stories that he related to me as a young boy, they go pretty far in all the places that he had seen. When I looked at the, the map and I saw how far he traveled, he, he had limited education and he's a sample of American soldiers who are just like him that went to serve in this, this war. And my grandfather was a part of that, that big picture. Personally, I did research the amount of soldiers that were killed and, and were buried overseas. They, they never came home. And so the thing is, I'm, I'm glad my grandpa came back so I could keep learning from him and learning all about our background and history and uh, about our culture for the Hopi people. It was it's so interesting to, to look at his life as a full experience. He, um, he's seen a lot, and uh, I, I have a lot of respect for the World War I veterans and all veterans. Myself, I'm retired from the Army. Uh, it was because of him that I myself joined the service, and I did 20 years. And my wife helped me. My wife is Sharon. I have three children. I have my two sons, Randy and Brent, and my daughter, Audrey. And uh, my middle boy, Brent, he did uh, four years in the Army, served as a medic at Fort Bliss, Texas. And so my, my family, along with a lot of Native American people out here in New Mexico, we have a very high uh, tradition of enlistment. Uh, we, out here we have the Navajo Code Talkers. We have so many uh, veterans who have just done a, a lot of interesting things. So, again, the centennial is combined with everything that I've seen in life. But my grandfather was uh, an integral part for my own enlistment back in those days. And if I could do it again and sign up again, I'd do it right now. Thank you, Nick. All right. I really appreciate it. And thank you very much. Nick Brokeshoulder is the grandson of Private Guy Mactima, who served in the U.S. Army during World War I. If you want to see more stories of service from individuals who served in the war, head over to our Stories of Service page at www.cc.org stories, where you'll also find a link where you can submit your own veteran story, or check the link in the podcast notes. 
in articles and posts this week. We're profiling a unique story of a unique military unit that had an adventure unlike any other during World War I, the Expeditionary Corps of Armored Cars. The Corps, often called ACM, was a military division formed by Belgian volunteers during World War I. It was sent to Russia at the request of the Tsar to fight the German army on the Eastern Front. After the Bolshevik Revolution, the ACM Corps found itself trapped in hostile territory, unable to return to Allied territory through Europe or through the Middle East. So to reach safety, the Corps headed east, eventually reaching the United States through China and Siberia. Talk about a road trip. The Embassy of Belgium has a new World War I exhibit on the ACM that's been traveling across the United States. We caught up with two members of the Belgian Embassy staff who worked on the exhibit, and you can read the interview with them at www.cc.org news or by following the link in the podcast notes. And that brings us to the buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, give us the buzz. Hi, Teo. Last week was Veterans Day and Armistice Day, and commemorations took place all across the world. You can see photos and videos and recaps of events shared on our Facebook and Twitter page or on our social media wall at www.cc.org social. One post in particular that I wanted to share comes from the Facebook page Les Américains de la Gondrecourt Area a very franglais page that commemorates the history of the American presence in Gondrecourt during World War I. On November 10th, college students in the area paid tribute to 131 American soldiers who died at the American hospital there between 1917 and 1919 by planting a tree in honor of each soldier. Each student received a card with the details of a certain American soldier they were to represent in the commemoration, including his regiment and his hometown. You can see images from this commemorative event by following the link in the podcast notes. Over here in the States, a young man completed a very ambitious project in Huntington, West Virginia recently. Benjamin Woodard has just finished installing 17 new park signs honoring World War I soldiers as his Eagle Scout project in Ritter Park. The park already contains trees planted in honor of World War I veterans, as well as a World War I memorial arch. So Woodard's signs fit right in, but also provide more information on the individuals who served. He did research on 91 local veterans of World War I during the course of the project. Coolest of all, he's given all of that research to the Clio app, an application for your iPhone or Android device, which takes your location and guides you to landmarks, museums, and historic sites nearby. People in Huntington will be able to open Clio and hear and read the stories of the soldiers that Woodard found during his work on his Eagle Scout project. Learn more about this project and the Clio app by following links in our notes. And that's it this week for The Buzz. And that wraps up World War I Centennial News for November 15th, 1917 and 2017. Our guests this week were Mike Schuster with a look back at the Battle of Passchendaele, Joe Weishar talking to us about his voyage with the National World War I Memorial at Pershing Park in Washington, D.C., Lawson Bergfeld from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Jackson, Missouri. Darlie Newman, giving us an insider look at her PBS travel episodes to northeastern France. Nick Brokeshoulder, sharing the story of his grandfather's World War I service. Catherine Akey, the commission's social media director and also the line producer for the show. And I'm Theo Mayer, your host. 
The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. This program is a part of that. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org/cn, on iTunes and Google Play at ww one Centennial News, and on Amazon Echo or other Alexa-enabled devices. Just say, Alexa, play ww one Centennial News podcast. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here today about the war that changed the world. Okay, up, point, aim, squeeze. You got it. Snap cap. I, I mean snapshot. So long.